but we'll see how much overlap there is. So I'm going to be talking about drugs of abuse here in this lecture. And they're bad. So we were actually told as, as part of this initiative to improve teaching at the medical school that we have to have at least four measurable objectives at the beginning of every lecture. Otherwise, how do you know that you are actually successful? So I'm going to be talking about major drugs and drug classes that are commonly abused, to talk about the dopamine hypothesis of drug addiction, to describe the signs and symptoms of overdose with and withdrawal from several different classes of drugs of abuse, and to describe general management principles of overdose of commonly abused drugs. That is the part which is going to be taught way under your guy's level, I hope. If it's way over your level, then I have some problems here. So we have a textbook. It's a, a very nice textbook in pharmacology. And the particular chapter about <laughs> drugs of abuse was actually written by this guy, Christian Luscher, who is from the University of Geneva Neuroscience Center. I actually make a point of pointing out to the students if I actually know the person who wrote the chapter. It actually sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, and, and I guess I am. But I don't know this guy at all. But I actually did a Google search on him and found that he's this member of the Addiction and Dopamine System Group. And they talk about the work they do as studying the phenomena of synaptic transmission and plasticity in the VTA to elucidate mechanisms underlying addiction. So obviously, that's why they chose him to write this chapter. But because of that, the chapter format is not clinically focused uh, at all. He talks about some basic neurobiology, which I guess is OK. It's very reasonable to talk about the basic neurobiology first. But then he goes on to classify the drugs by the type of receptor or protein they bind, whether they're GI-coupled or geocoupled, whether they're ionotropic or <laughs> biogenic amine transporter. And I guess this makes sense from a bench scientist's point of view, but I didn't find it very helpful clinically. So I basically just developed this lecture ignoring the way that he had put the chapter together. So I think it makes a lot more clinical sense. So there's a number of terms that are sometimes used interchangeably, but really shouldn't, related to drugs of abuse. So if you are using a drug, you may develop tolerance to it, which means that you need to escalate the dose required to maintain the effect that you're looking for. And this is part of the adaptive changes made on a biochemical basis from repeated exposure to the drug. So you will at first develop tolerance before you will develop dependence. Now, what we currently call dependence used to be called physical dependence. And what that means is you're taking the drug, but when the dose of the drug decreases, you then develop a withdrawal syndrome, which means that these adaptive changes that you had taking place before you're developing tolerance. You have these adaptive changes. And those are good for you to maintain some homeostasis. But now, when the drug dose decreases, all those adaptive changes become maladaptive, and you feel bad. And that's why you come to the emergency department when you're withdrawing from opiates with some weird complaint about your legs itching or, or nausea or something. <coughs> but it's really just the fact that you ran out of money, and you can no longer afford to buy as much black market Vicodin as you had before. So then. Stepwise, you go from this tolerance to dependence, and then you may develop addiction, which was formerly called psychological dependence. So you pretty much need to have physical dependence first before you start developing 
these compulsions that lead to relapsing drug use despite pretty clear negative consequences going on. So addiction means you, you've gone past the point where you can develop a withdrawal syndrome. You could imagine a very psychically well-adapted patient with chronic pain who is physically dependent on the drug, but they're not doing stuff that's actually getting them into trouble. And it's when you do stuff that gets you into trouble that that's when it's called an addiction. I think I've only got a couple of slides about this very fascinating topic on the dopamine theory of addiction to drugs of abuse. <clears throat> it appears that pretty much all addictive drugs activate the mesolimbic dopamine system. How many people remember how many dopaminergic symptom, uh, systems we have in our CNS? Nobody? That's what I thought. <laughs> like, at least three. <laughs> Five dopamine receptors, at least, that have been identified, but three of these uh, systems. So the theory here is that this dopaminergic neurotransmission is involved in the innate reward system that our brain has developed over many millions of years of evolution. Things that you do uh, that are good for your survival and reproduction, you want to do again, like eating and, and having sex. But this can be miswired by these drugs of abuse. So drugs that increase dopaminergic tone in these pathways inappropriately reinforce behaviors which can then become compulsive, and that's when you can develop an addiction. So that's a really simple theory, and I think for medical students, and actually for most physicians, that's really all you're going to need to know unless you become a pain medicine specialist or addictions uh, specialist. But it's really not all that simple, because there's plenty of drugs that affect dopamine neurotransmission that don't involve addiction. And in the pharmacology class, we're going to actually be covering those a couple of weeks after this particular lecture. <clears throat> So I always do Google searches when I'm preparing lectures because I like to find some really nice graphic material, especially that's got multiple colors. And this came out of an article in The Lancet where they were looking at a whole bunch of different drugs of abuse and said, well, they're not all as bad as each other. Some are worse. How can we categorize how bad these drugs are? And they gave them this scale of physical harm versus scale of how likely somebody is to become dependent on them. And if you take a look at the drugs here, say heroin's all the way in the upper right, that kind of makes sense. Yeah, heroin's a really bad one. Uh, and then uh, see, ecstasy, actually ecstasy on here doesn't look all that bad, huh? What is cat? Cat is an awesome word to use in Scrabble because it can also be spelled Q-A-T, and it's a way to use your Q without a U. But to really answer your question, it is... <laughs> I'll get to you. <laughs> but to really answer your question, it is a plant which is grown in the Near East, and it is a mild stimulant, a bit stronger than coffee, not quite as strong as cocaine that is used traditionally. And the, the typical way this is used is all the guys, they finish their work for the day. In the afternoon, they all go to this shop where they buy this plant, and they chew it. And they chew it almost like chewing tobacco with a big plug of it between their cheek and gum and just allow it to be absorbed transmucosally and under their tongue. And they do that instead of going out to drink alcohol, because it being usually in a Muslim country, they 
if they're practicing, they're not going to be drinking, and instead of uh, drinking coffee instead. There, there appeared to be a comment out there from Dr. Rudkin. There was there was some mention of a South Park episode that I've never seen. Is that the same as the beetle nut? Or? The question was, is that the same as the beetle nut, B-E-T-E-L? The answer is no. A beetle nut is another traditionally chewed plant that contains high levels of caffeine. Also used in Scrabble. Uh, it, excuse me. I'm going to take that back. It contains a nicotine-like alkaloid, not caffeine. Max wants to know what dilaudid is. Wants to know what dilaudid is? I don't know. It, it's not on there, sorry. Here is uh, another fascinating uh, picture that I found. Drug harms in the UK, a multi-criteria decision analysis, also from The Lancet. It, uh, the Lancet, I think, is one of the top three journals uh, in the entire world, where they were looking at all sorts of ways that drugs can mess you up. Drug-specific mortality, drug-specific... Uh, damage, drug-related mortality, cost to the community, international damage, family adversities. So if you add all of these up, the worst drug in the world is alcohol. And then we got heroin right here. And actually, you know, shrooms aren't looking so bad again. <laughs> So first I'm going to talk about opioids. So the opium poppy, the plant from which we get the natural source of opiates, is papaver somniferum. So if you know your Latin, that means the bringer of sleep. And actually the drug morphine itself is named after the god Morpheus, the god of sleep. Because of course you take enough of this, you'll nod off and go to sleep. Hopefully you don't take so much that you actually stop breathing. Now. The words opium, opiate, and opioid are often used interchangeably, and that is incorrect. I'm going to define them for you. Opium is the extract of the exudate from cutting the seed pods of the opium poppy. So the plant flowers, and it gets pollinated, and then it makes this seed pod. And then the petals fall off of it. And then somebody goes out into the field with a small handheld knife and makes some small cuts into the seed pod and it just drips this sap and then several days later they go out and collect the dried bits of this sap and that is opium and you could just eat that raw and in fact that was very popular in the 1600s and 1700s opium eating now opiate is a naturally occurring analgesic alkaloid found in opium the active ingredient and the number one active ingredient in opium is morphine maybe around 80% of it, and then about 7% of it is codeine. And then there's many, many others, but morphine and codeine are at least the ones that we recognize because they are used clinically. Are those the dried little things in that picture? This is the sap coming out, and uh, it's partially dried right here. Now, an opioid is an agent that produces an opiate-like effect because it binds to opioid receptors and there's several different things which are opioids. We have natural opioids. I mean we have this receptor in our body, the opioid receptor. What the heck is it a receptor for? It's a receptor for endorphins and some other naturally uh, produced products. And then we have both synthetic and semi-synthetic opioids. The semi-synthetic ones, they look chemically like 
the opiates, but they have been chemically modified. So oxycodone, for instance, is one of these. Heroin is one of these. And then there's the purely synthetic opioids that chemically don't look anything like this morphine nucleus right here. They're structurally different, but they still bind to the same receptor and have the same effect. So for instance, fentanyl and all of the entonyls, uh, methadone, meparidine, which is Demerol, they are synthetic opioids, not opiates. So I'm going to focus a little bit here on heroin. So in 1874, an English pharmacist was seeking a non-addictive alternative to morphine, and he boiled morphine with acetic acid to produce 3,6-diacetyl morphine. So if you look up here, here's the morphine nucleus right there, but instead of having a hydroxyl group here, it's acetylated. Instead of having a hydroxyl group here, it's acetylated. So this is less polar than morphine is. Then in 1898, diacetyl morphine was marketed by Bayer under the trade name heroin, meaning that it was a heroic drug. And it was their first blockbuster drug right around the turn of last century. And aspirin was number two. And in fact, here's some ads from around the turn of last century. Heroin, the sedative for coughs. And then aspirin, the substitute for salicylates. What? Salicylates as anti-inflammatories had been around for a while, but they were all very GI destructive <coughs> compared to aspirin. Aspirin was actually the benignest of the salicylates at the time. And so here was another ad for heroin that you could uh, you know, ask for some of this by, uh, through the mail because it was used for bronchitis, physis, which must have been cured since nobody has physis anymore. And it's actually a way of describing people with tuberculosis. <clears throat> so here's Felix Hoffman. He is the guy who first synthesized the medically useful forms of aspirin and heroin, and he discovered both in a one-month period in 1898, his best month ever. <laughs> <laughs> He's dead now, so no, he does not remember. <clears throat> so heroin is diacetyl morphine. Now I mentioned that you acetylate these hydroxyl groups and it decreases how polar it is, so it actually crosses the blood-brain barrier a lot easier than morphine. This is why we see so many heroin addicts and we don't see nearly as many morphine addicts because the faster it gets into the brain, the more euphoria you get from it. And then in the body, this acetyl group can be hydrolyzed off and this one can be hydrolyzed off and actually that takes place relatively quickly but the morphine's already gotten to your brain which is exactly what the heroin abuser wanted. Somebody has a drug test and it shows up positive for opiates. It could be any kind of opiate and the patient says, oh I wasn't using heroin I have a prescription for Vicodin and that's why my drug test turned up positive. Well, then you can take that urine sample and look for monoacetyl morphine. You don't spontaneously acetylate that hydroxyl group. You only get it from uh, using heroin. So that's the way people get nailed. All right. So everybody wants to know, how do you use heroin? The faster it gets into your brain, the better the euphoriant effect. This is all a pharmacokinetics issue. So you can eat opium. In fact, that, as I mentioned before, that was very popular a few centuries ago. And there was this book by Thomas de Quincey, Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Look, he nodded off. Morpheus got to him. 
or you can inhale it. Interestingly, here's the movie based upon the book starring Vincent Price, and he's not eating it. He's smoking it. This is the traditional way that opium uh, was smoked for a long time. So if you inhale it, now you have this large surface area of your lungs that you can absorb it through, which might be a lot faster than just eating it and it's in a bolus in your gut. Or you can inject it parenterally, which is great, because then you have 100% bioavailability. <clears throat> now here's the clinical stuff that the second year students really love that you've, that you've already all experienced. So it's commonly injected into the antecubital and forearm veins because they're superficial, easily accessible, and recurrent use leads to scarring or track marks. Here's an awesome picture that I found on Science Photo Library of some track marks. And you can tell there obviously was a vein right under here. Here's a patient with some more advanced track marks. That's pretty awesome. So what happens when you can't use your antecubital and forearm veins because you, they're scarred down so much or perhaps you don't want your parents knowing about it so you, uh, so you don't actually inject into your arms? So you go to the dorsum of the feet between the toes. Uh, breast veins, especially in pregnant or lactating women, are a, a, a good way to go. The dorsal vein of the penis. No. <laughs> or you can go to the jugular veins. The external jugular is uh, kind, of, uh, kind of popular. So there's this concept called a pocket shot, IV injection lateral to the sternocleidomastoid uh, and above the clavicle to hit the IJ. So you go to a shooting gallery. It's hard to do yourself, so you pay somebody else to do it. And so what is this guy doing over here? Coughing. He's valsalvaing or, or coughing to increase the pressure in his uh, jugular veins. Here's a guy holding his nose to do the same thing. Yeah, doesn't this stuff look pure? It's right in there. <laughs> and of course, this puts you at risk for all sorts of nastiness that we then see in the emergency department. Now, when venous access is now no longer an option at all, common and long-term users, you get recurrent skin and soft tissue infections that leave these stereotypical cratered scars from skin popping. So here's somebody's leg. Here's a guy with the typical skin popping marks on his arms. And like I said before, it, using drugs is bad for you. What I think is kind of interesting is that obviously all these wounds put you at risk for tetanus, which is a clostridium-borne illness. And also associated is botulism, a different clostridium-associated illness because they just like these nasty necrotic wounds. You can inhale your heroin. You put the heroin on foil and you heat it with a lighter or matches and it liquefies into a glob which is called the dragon and it kind of moves around the foil emitting a white vapor which you chase and inhale through a straw. So this is chasing the dragon. So this is a, uh, a great way to use it if you don't want to inject or you're afraid of injecting. And you don't want to get those infectious complications, but you don't mind a toxic leukoencephalopathy instead. And now here is my reference to South Park right here. So this was a game that they were talking about called Heroin Hero. They said it was the ultimate first-person shooter. But the problem was, if you're actually shooting, you're not chasing the dragon because those are different ways of abusing heroin. Don't you think that I, it makes drug use look cooler than it really is? <laughs> I think so. So I found this pamphlet that was actually handed out in New York City to give tips for safer use. 
so that you can take charge of your heroin use. <clears throat> and there's good stuff, you know, uh, have the person lie on their side, don't dig for veins, don't always inject in the same spot, and you only boot once or twice. I think that's having, I don't know what that is. Is that the blood coming back out? I thought that was registering. Don't blunt your needle. Yeah, that's a good one. <clears throat> What to do if there's an emergency? Call 911 and don't say I'm a drug user. Say, my friend is not breathing. <laughs> Give Narcan if you have it. That's a great one. And then lay the person on his or her side. There are people who go and get Narcan specifically for this. And there are countries in the world where Narcan is available legally. Uh, I don't know if it's available over the counter. I presume you need some sort of medical oversight uh, to get it. It's drawing blood back before you Okay. I forget the country, but there are places, just like you said, you don't, go, you don't have to give any identification or anything. You don't need a prescription. They'll just hand them out. Like, um, they'll just give them out. They have centers that you yeah. go and you just get them. It, it, does, it does seem difficult. How are you going to hurt somebody with naloxone? You're not going to hurt anybody. You're only going to potentially help somebody. So it's a good public safety measure. So some other opioid abuse issues. Uh, meparidine, also known by the name of uh, Demerol, used to be used much more in the past until the drug-seeking patients kept asking for it by name. So now they just switched. This is the way all drug abuse works. Something just gets passe, and it gets replaced with something else. So now they ask for dilaudid, the hydromorphone. Uh, but there is a valid medical reason why we're not using Demerol so much, which is because if this builds up in your body, its metabolite is neurotoxic, and you can get agitation and seizures from it. Dr. Sushari. Yes, sir. Um, so booting heroin is uh, where after you inject, then you draw blood back so that in case there's any residual heroin in the needle, then you boot it in again so that you clear out your needle make sure you got all oh. the so, so booting is a cost-saving measure for those of you at home. <laughs> there was an interesting disease that occurred because of this drug, MPTP. It was a synthetic designer drug modeled on the chemical structure of meparidine, and it gets metabolized in the body into MPP+, which specifically targets and kills dopaminergic cells in the substantia nigra, resulting in this outbreak of Parkinson's disease in young drug abusers in the Bay Area in the mid-1980s. They were called the frozen addicts. So what happens in an opiate overdose? Now this is the most awesome picture I could find of meiosis. We often talk about pinpoint pupils. I don't think I've ever seen something quite this pinpoint right here. So the toxidrome is three things, CNS depression, respiratory depression, and meiosis. It's not meiosis, because meiosis is forming gametes. This is meiosis. <laughs> there are a number of potential mimics for opiate overdose, including hypoglycemia, hypoxia, hypothermia, imidazoline drugs, which are all central alpha-2 agonists, such as clonidine. clonidine. Excellent. And pontine hemorrhage can also mimic this. I've seen that twice. <laughs> How do we treat opiate overdose? Well, everything starts with ABCs and supportive care. If somebody's going to do poorly, it's because they're not ventilating. There is an antidote, naloxone, goes by the name Narcan for narcotic antagonist. It can be given in multiple different methods, including nebulized, assuming the person is still breathing. 
It is relatively short-acting compared to virtually all of the opiates that it reverses, so it is possible that you can have resedation. Now, clinically in the ED, if a patient comes in, heroin overdose, you need to give them Narcan, they wake up, the first thing they're going to ask you once they figure out what's going on is, when can I leave? <laughs> so here's what I do based upon no data whatsoever. I know that the half-life of Narcan is about 20 minutes. So if we wait several half-lives, we're going to know if the patient's going to resedate significantly or not. So I tell them four hours. They get antsy. They might even be withdrawing. They, they feel that this ED visit is a waste of their time, and they will elope after about two or three hours. And I'm fine with that. <laughs> but I told them four. <laughs> Opioid withdrawal has a number of signs and symptoms along with it. You can crave opioids, be irritable, restless. You get GI effects with nausea and cramping, muscle aches. That's usually what the patients who are withdrawing who come to the emergency department are complaining of, muscle aches. And you have to tease out from them why it is that they're actually having these symptoms. The physical signs include pupillary dilation. Makes sense because toxicity makes them small. They can sweat, they can get pyroerection or goose flesh, vomiting, diarrhea, increased blood pressure, yawning. It's very, very unpleasant, but it's not life-threatening. How do we treat opioid withdrawal? Well, we can rely on cross-tolerance and switch from the abused opioid to a prescription medically controlled opioid and then gradually decrease the dose. At least that's the idea when someone's going into a methadone treatment program. I don't know how many of them actually ever get off or are motivated enough uh, to get off. You can use clonidine, an alpha-2 agonist, which is typically used for hypertension. It reduces many of the autonomic symptoms of opioid withdrawal by decreasing the central output. Or you can activate endogenous opioids. Tell them to go out and exercise and run. Yeah, that'll work really well. <clears throat> Methadone is used because it can be substituted, say, for heroin. It is long-acting, so it can be dosed just once a day. And that way, you're trading the more dangerous drug for a much less dangerous drug. And you can monitor the drug dosing, but the access is limited to accredited outpatient programs unless they're getting it for pain. That's a whole other issue. And then eventually you can wean the patient off, but many continue this indefinitely. So here's methadone right here. Is it opium, opiate, or opioid? opioid. It is an opioid. It does not share the same chemical structure as the opiates. <clears throat> now, trexone is another antagonist that we don't use in the emergency department. <clears throat> it, it will compete like all antagonists do at the mu opioid receptor. You can give it orally, or there's even a depot uh, injection. And then there's a relatively newer drug out there called buprenorphine, which is a partial agonist antagonist. Now, this made no sense to me at all when I was a medical student. Essentially, it is an agonist, but you can't have the same peak effect as if you had a pure agonist like morphine. So what that means is when you have some of this on board, it limits how high you get. And if you don't get quite the same high as what you had before, you don't like it as much. And eventually you will be able, hopefully, to get off of the drug. And it comes with or without naloxone. 
And you can actually do some online courses and get accredited and be a doctor who can actually uh, prescribe this. Any licensed physician can do this. There is something else called ultra-rapid opiate detoxification, which fortunately I think is pretty much gone. But around the time that I was finishing my residency, this was uh, a big money-making thing. So going through withdrawal is painful and people don't like it. What if you put somebody to sleep? What if you put them under anesthesia, general anesthesia, and then pump them full of Narcan? And they go through the withdrawal, but they're unconscious. For it. That's the whole idea, and people would pay thousands of dollars to do this. The problem is that you don't just withdraw all at once. A lot of the most severe stuff does happen all at once, but all of these people still have cravings, and they feel miserable at, uh, afterwards. Some of them would have naltrexone tablets implanted in the skin, and they'd try to dig them out with forks and knives. <clears throat> all right, we're going to switch and do some coke. So, cocaine, another plant-derived substance from a shrub native to South America, erythroxylin coca, which has been used by the native population for thousands of years. The most common traditional use is that you'd have some dried leaves, and you'd chew them, and you'd have this little clay pot that had some powdered calcium carbonate, some powdered lime uh, in it. And why were they doing that? They were actually freebasing this stuff in their mouth so that it would cross the buccal mucosa easier and be absorbed faster. Albert Neiman actually got his PhD by coming up with a way to purify cocaine. And 1884 was cocaine's best year ever. It was used as an ophthalmic topical anesthetic. So now you can actually do surgery on somebody's eyes without inducing terrible, terrible, terrible pain because they didn't have good general anesthesia at this time. It was first uh, used as an injection as a surgical anesthetic by Dr. William Halstead, who subsequently became a cocaine addict. And then Sigmund Freud wrote the book on coca, Uber Coca, where he recommends it as a stimulant, yes, an anesthetic, yes, for asthma, yeah, it'll work for that. Digestive disorders, I don't know, aphrodisiac, yeah. Actually, he was pretty on the money here, but he also suggested to use it to treat addiction to morphine or to treat addiction to ethanol. Again, this whole idea of substituting one thing for another occurs multiple times throughout tox history and drug history. <coughs> Snoring it becomes popular around 1905 with the first report of nasal septal damage a few years later. Got outlawed as a narcotic. It's not a narcotic, but narcotic is a legal definition, not a medical definition. In 1922, freebasing is California born around 1976. Up until that time, cocaine had been sold as the hydrochloric acid salt. So it contains a nitrogen, and the nitrogen can be protonated or not. And so it would be protonated with some chloride, be sold as the hydrochloric acid salt. Much easier to process this way, much easier to distribute, but you can't smoke it. If you try to smoke it, increase its absorption all at once through an increased surface area, it just burns. And then the smoke that you're breathing in doesn't have cocaine in it. But if you freebase it, if you turn it into its free base, it doesn't burn up and it crosses membranes easier, giving a more intense euphoric effect. So, Ladies and gentlemen, how do we freebase cocaine? So here's the salt over here, and we want to make the freebase. So we dissolve the cocaine salt in water. We raise the pH by adding some lye, some sodium hydroxide. Then we heat the mixture over a flame. <clears throat> then we add an organic solvent, and we mix it. Remember the SEP funnel? 
You don't remember the SEP funnel? Some people remember the SEP funnel. So there's an aqueous phase and there's an organic phase. And so the salt's going to be in the aqueous phase and you want it to go over to the organic phase. So you do that right there in the, uh, in the spoon over an open flame with an organic solvent. And so you, you have to watch out that you don't burn yourself. Uh, but then once you've done that and you haven't burned yourself, you can smoke and enjoy. <laughs> so crack cocaine is cocaine, but it's a very user-friendly product where the manufacturer freebases the cocaine for you so you won't burn yourself up. And so they make these small rocks of crack cocaine that are sold in these tiny glass vials. And one reason why people think it's called crack is because these are imperfect crystals. And as they heat up, they crack with a cracking noise. What is cocaine's mechanism of action? Now, this is important for these second-year students. It inhibits voltage-gated sodium channels, resulting in a local anesthetic effect. And so it can be used topically in ENT surgery, ortho procedures for laceration repair. See, now we use LET, lidocaine, epinephrine, tetracaine, but its immediate precursor was TAC, tetracaine, adrenaline, cocaine, and it worked fine, and there's only been a few cases of kids getting really sick from this. It can also, through sodium channel inhibition, widen out your QRS. And since it's due to sodium channel inhibition, you treat it by giving them hypertonic sodium bicarb. <clears throat> and it also inhibits biogenic amine reuptake, the reuptake of dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, resulting in increased synaptic levels. And so therefore, cocaine is an indirect sympathomimetic. It does not itself bind to the alpha and beta receptors, but it causes more epinephrine and dopamine to be around to bind to the alpha and beta receptors. So it is indirectly causing sympathomimesis. Hopefully you guys all know about the sympathomimetic toxidrome, tachycardia, hypertension, medriasis, diaphoresis, all sorts of neuro effects. Hyperthermia is really bad. And we treat it mostly through supportive care, benzos, and cooling measures. Now, there is this byproduct of cocaine called cocaethylene, produced by transesterification when cocaine and ethanol are consumed together. But when would that ever happen? <laughs> Pretty much every single time cocaine is used. It is more cardiotoxic than cocaine. That's really all you need to know about it. I thought it was more sedating, too, than alcohol. So I remember in high school, some, some kid died from it in the area, and the mom would come and talk, and they passed out. Uh, the comment was that cocaethylene is more sedating than ethanol. I have no idea. <clears throat> amphetamine. So amphetamine actually means something. It means alpha-methylphenylamine. And you can see, if you remember what epinephrine looks like, that this looks a heck of a lot like epinephrine and other endogenous catecholamines. But even though it looks a lot like them, it actually doesn't bind to the receptors either, and it's an indirect sympathomimetic. It competitively inhibits biogenic amine reuptake and impedes filling of presynaptic vesicles, which further inhibits biogenic amine reuptake. And this graphic right here is supposed to represent that. Basically, the amphetamine will be taken up into these vesicles, so less of the dopamine and epinephrine will, so there's more dopamine and epinephrine right here. So when we're trying to reuptake the dopamine and norepinephrine, it does it against uh, more of a, a barrier just due to the chemical gradient. So you end up with more dopamine and norepinephrine here. So you get the same clinical effects, and you treat it the same way as you would for cocaine, but you don't get the sodium channel blockade. 
So it's not a local anesthetic and it doesn't cause cardiotoxicity. Ecstasy is a particular kind of amphetamine, methylene dioxymethamphetamine, and it's believed that the substitution over here on the phenyl group increases serotonergic effects, increasing feelings of empathy and intimacy. And actually, ecstasy was used therapeutically in psychotherapy in the 70s and 80s because of this. Now it's most frequently reported to be used at rave parties. And people are there getting really hot, dancing a lot, drinking a lot of hypotonic fluid, and ecstasy also causes release of endogenous ADH, so you're actually at risk for hyponatremia. So anyone who's altered after going to a rave might be hyponatremic based upon this. Here's a wonderful experiment done in London where they got some volunteers to take some ecstasy, and they measured the ecstasy levels. Surprisingly, they went up after you took ecstasy. But then also mirroring that, the arginine vasopressin levels went up mirroring it as well. And here's a whole menu of different colors and shapes that ecstasy can be sold in. You have to be careful, though. A lot of the stuff that they sell as ecstasy isn't. Some of it is just caffeine. Don't get ripped off. <laughs> Methamphetamine. Methamphetamine actually is a prescription drug, although I've never seen a patient on it. This drug called Dazoxin, which is indicated for ADHD, although commonly used for weight loss. Really, methamphetamine helps you with weight loss? That's surprising. A very popular illicit drug of abuse. It's relatively easy to manufacture. The common base ingredient is ephedrine. But you can also use pseudoephedrine, which is just chemically a stereoisomer of ephedrine. So Sudafed, you can buy it over the counter, although sales are now closely monitored. You can't buy a case of this stuff anymore without the DEA knowing about it. So how do you get from ephedrine to meth? It is one step. All you need to do is take this hydroxyl group off. That is why any Yahoo can make this stuff in their garage. Well, how do we make it? I know that's why you showed up today, is to learn how to make meth. So you take your tablets of Sudafed and you grind them up in a blender. You mix them with solvent and it dissolves into the organic solvent. Then you filter it. And then here's where the actual chemical step takes place. You add red phosphorus and acid. This is one of a couple of different ways of making it. This is the most common one. You put it in this big 22 liter flask called a bubbling 22 and you leave it there for a couple of hours. Then you filter out the sludge, you add some caustic soda to increase the pH, but this is going to release a lot of heat, so you've got to pack the thing in ice. Then you add freon, because the meth will dissolve into the freon as, uh, because it's an organic solvent, and then it will drip out as liquid methamphetamine. Then you bubble hydrochloric uh, acid gas through it to make the HCl salt, which is solid, because the free base is a liquid. It's very difficult to sell liquid on the street, individual dose units. So that's why you have to make it into uh, the solid. So then you filter that, you put it here on this table, you mix it with a whole bunch of other cheap crap so that you can increase your profit margin. It's a lot of work. Which part tends to blow up? Which part tends to blow up? <laughs> this part or this part? But mostly this part right here. All right. So here's what meth looks like. Here's the crystals, tiny little plastic baggie. But you see it's kind of hydroscopic. It's kind of moist uh, most, uh, most of the time when people make it in these uncontrolled fashions in, uh, in their garage. Now, the thing about meth is that the salt, unlike cocaine, the salt is smokable. 
<clears throat> and bad stuff can happen when you take meth. If you want to see some nasty pictures, just Google faces of meth. Here's one of them. Yeah, she lost some weight, that's for sure, and she's also picking her face to death. The uh, latest amphetamine trend are these bath salts. They look kind of like uh, the other stimulant molecules, like, uh, like amphetamine. They cause clinically the same kind of effects with psychostimulant uh, uh, effect. They're often sold, labeled as bath salts or plant food, and everybody knows it's not a bath salt. Everybody knows it's not a plant food. And the whole idea here is there's a legal loophole. If you sell it as a drug, you can get nailed for selling it as a drug. But if you say, no, I, it, this is something else, and so you actually can't get nailed for that law, even though you might get nailed for the law of actually possessing the illegal substance. <clears throat> Can you sell cocaine as bath salt and not get charged? The comment was made, you label it for not for human consumption, uh, and so bath salts are not for human consumption, and plant food is not for human consumption, but everybody knows what you're really supposed to, supposed to use it for. So I talked about a withdrawal syndrome for opiates. Is there a withdrawal syndrome from psychostimulants? Certainly, psychological craving occurs because the person is in the habit of using these drugs. But it is very controversial whether there is any somatic component to this. Now, cocaine and amphetamines are often used in binges. Somebody gets a paycheck, they buy a whole bunch, and then they just use it, use it, use it for a couple of days until it's all gone. And then they can present with something that's called a cocaine washed out syndrome. These Patients will have relatively normal vital signs, but they've got CNS depression. You can barely wake them up. You do a workup on them, you CT them, LP them, get labs, and other than maybe dehydration or mild rhabdo, they don't really have anything else going on with them. But they've got to be admitted to the hospital because they just have this altered mental status. And within a couple of days, they wake up and sign out AMA or, or just uh, elope from the hospital. And there is a theory that they've just depleted all of their presynaptic stores of neurotransmitters, of the biogenic amines, and it's just going to take them a couple of days to regenerate it. Well, I actually have significantly more here, but I've had way too much fun with this. Uh, so let me see how much further I, I can get. I think we can do about 10 minutes more. <clears throat> so if you ever go to read, you have to take this picture. I think it's a requirement. Uh, I've never been there, so this isn't me. Where is it? Uh, Northern California. Now, is it in Humboldt County? I mean, it, it really ought to be. So, there are two main types of cannabinoids. <coughs> we have a cannabinoid receptor, so there has to be some sort of endogenous cannabinoid. And we have a few of them. Anandamide is one of them. They're really, really weird. Most neurotransmitters go from presynaptic to postsynaptic. This one actually goes the other way and then causes presynaptic inhibition of release of GABA or glutamate. Very, very weird. But nobody really talks about those uh, in clinical medicine. We all talk about the exogenous cannabinoids. And the best known is delta-9-THC, this guy right here. Here's some cannabis plants. Now, uh, cannabis plants have a lot of uses other than just drug use. 
the fibers are used to make hemp, a lot of rope from that. There's a seed oil, but everybody really uses it for the psychoactive content. What are the clinical effects that you can see? There are some therapeutic clinical effects because marinol, dronabinol, can be used to increase the appetite, decrease nausea, to decrease intraocular pressure for glaucoma. Relief of chronic pain, sure, maybe. I guess if you chill out from the THC, you don't care so much about the pain. There's all of these medical marijuana clinics out there. In my opinion, most of these are a sham and they're just facilitating abuse. Uh, and for recreational use, it is used for euphoria, altered perception. But you can also get drowsy conjunctival injection and almost everybody gets paranoid to some extent. A number of concerns specifically related to marijuana, that it's a gateway drug. That's not terribly dangerous in and of itself, but its use may lead to harder drugs. I think there's something to that. It might cause an amotivational syndrome, which is just essentially the guy's a, a stoner and doesn't do anything with his life. Uh, how much of that was actually the drug versus he was never going to do anything with his life anyway? <laughs> Uh, is there a withdrawal syndrome from marijuana? Some people say yes, some people say no. It's mostly just a psychologic craving where you abruptly uh, cease your use after using it chronically. Another recent trend related to cannabinoids are these substances that go by several names, including K2 and Spice. These don't involve marijuana at all. They are cannabinoids, but they're synthetic cannabinoids that are then added to otherwise inert organic materials sold at head shops and gas stations, sometimes sold as a herbal incense, not for human consumption, do not smoke this, wink, wink, kind of thing. And this eventually got to be a big enough problem that several of these synthetic cannabinoids are now on the FDA and DEA lists as illegal as of March 2011. <clears throat> I think I'm going to stop it here so that we have an adequate break before we start up. The uh, cases for the mock oil boards are going to be starting at 13.